Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice for chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label, and for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. The latest meal that I had at Noma, it was interesting because he was playing with the brain of the deer, and it's, it's scary on the menu when you read it, and when you eat it, it's, it's delicious, and it's not what you expected it, especially from a guy like me who doesn't eat brains. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Today on the show, I welcome my old friend Eric Repair back to the studio. It's so great catching up with Eric, and we talk about many things. We talk about the closing of Noma. We talk about the new cookbook he's working on. We talk about the 50-year anniversary of Le Bernardin. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Eric Repair, welcome back to the Taste Podcast. Thank you, Matt. Happy to be back. It's great to see your face. It's been a little while. A little bit, right? Although you're not so far from Le Bernardin, you could always pop up and, and have a drink with me. I've popped up and had a meal with you, and, and I went to Le Bernardin last summer during your 50th year. Best meal by far of oh, the you. year. No, and I mean thank that I, we have a lot of chefs in, but between service and bringing back some of the classic dishes and the innovation, 50 years you've been doing, you personally, the restaurant's been operating, you, you're, you're as good as ever. Wow. The coming from you is a great compliment. Appreciate that. Well, I, I really appreciate. It. I'm I, the one who appreciates. Pre- no, I appreciate you. Is what I'm saying, and I think I appreciate your um, really just dedication to making sure that your guests feel good, but also the culinary side of it. You, you're not phoning it in, like never. You've always been a chef um, who's um, operated at the highest level, and it's not easy, especially after a pandemic. Yeah, the pandemic was a tough tough one for the restaurant industry, hospitality industry in general, because people couldn't go to restaurants, couldn't go to hotels. Everybody was closed, yeah. at least in New York State yeah. and many other parts of the U.S. I mean, we talked on Zoom in 2020 and we talked about your book, um, yes. your last book. And I remember times were a little, they were just coming, people were just coming back and it was like before Omicron and then Omicron hits. We didn't close, mm. but people were scared again. I remember. And suddenly the restaurants were slow and it was, again, a challenge. How do you motivate the staff? Your staff is in the hundreds. How do you motivate everyone to come back, put on the suits every single day and operate that high level? So first of all, I didn't have to motivate them to come back. They really wanted to come back. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking about the dining room staff, the team. Uh, the offices came back immediately. And then in the kitchen, all the sous chefs, all the, the associate people with experience came back. What we lost was a lot of young talent. Mm-hmm. Uh, they went back to their families because they were in New York with roommates. Mm-hmm. They were um, working at the restaurant and, and learning and trying to have an ex- experience in fine dining. Many of them went back to their states and, and didn't come back. Uh, with us. So we had to replace uh, the mm-hmm. young talent in the kitchen and then train the new team. But except that, everything was fine. And today we have a, a very big team again. Mm-hmm. I think we are 170 plus plus mm-hmm. employees. And uh, most of the employees are pretty well trained. Yeah. Where do you recruit your staff? Where do you, where do you find your employees? Because, you know, traditional culinary schools is not always where, you know, talent comes from, right? Culinary schools provide a lot of support, Good. especially during the busy season, which is from October to end of December in New York. Yeah. And then April, May, June is pretty busy as well in New York. So we reinforce the team with a lot of young um, cooks and, and waiters coming from schools. But most of our team comes from um, references from other chefs. Yeah. So we, I get a call or we get a letter of someone saying, hey, listen, 
this person is very good in the kitchen. I think if you have a spot, you should try. And then uh, they come and we know already they have been recommended yeah. it by Jean-Georges, Daniel and, and other chefs. And we're like, they, they know a little bit. Yeah, at least. They've, they've gotten through those ringers, <laughs> yes, so they'll be okay right. there. What's, what's a Le Bernardin uh, interview process? Like when you're applying for a job in the back of the house, in the kitchen, what's, what's that like? So I used to do all the interviews. And then uh, today, Eric, who's the num- number two in the kitchen, and Tony. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Eric is with me for, hold on, 95. It's 27 years, yeah. right? Um, he's with me since 95. We used to work at Robuchon together mm-hmm. on the line in 1986. Oh, I read about that in 32 Yokes. Yes. Good, in, good yeah. times. Yes. Not really, actually. <laughs> read that book. We'll, we'll get into 32 Yokes. But yes. yeah, Robuchon, interesting period. It was an interesting experience, but we learned a lot. And Tony is with us for maybe 12 or 14 years. So they take care of the interviews in details. And then I always make sure that I see the candidate. So I have like, um, uh, I would say, casual uh, contact with that person just to have a feeling. And then the questions we ask them are very random. Um, yeah. Not, nothing really tricky. But what we do, we ask them to be in a kitchen with us for one night to observe the kitchen. Yeah. But in fact, we observe them. Yeah. They think they are looking at us. We are looking at their behavior in the kitchen. Yeah. So if you see a guy with his hands in his pockets, leaning against the wall and yawning, uh, yeah. you know it's not going to work. Yeah, yeah. They and need if, to be attentive. And if you see someone too eager, you're like, oh, that, that potential there. Ah. He's very excited. We have to tell him to cool down a little bit, but, <laughs> but it's a good sign. Yeah, when you're that, when you're that uh, excited about a role. Yes. Uh, it's hard work. It's hard work. Yeah. Of course. It's hard work. Yes. Well, we say of course, but I, I still think it's not clear what goes into your food every single day. How, I mean, in the back of the house, what time are folks arriving to start their shift? So we have two teams. Right. Uh, one team between 6.30 and 7.00. And the second team, two o'clock, three o'clock, we have also a team that comes at noon to Mm. help for the lunch and leaves uh, before we close, like around maybe 10 o'clock at night. They'll work dinner service, but they won't have to do the cleanup. Exactly. Right. And the dinner service goes much uh, later than 10 o'clock. Oh, yeah? We we take tables until (laughs) 11 o'clock at night, so people finish around uh, 1 o'clock sometimes. Uh, what's, an 11, what's an 11 a.m. or sorry, 11 p.m. diner at Le Bernardin like? What, what are they coming from? Usually they come back from the theater. Sure. They have seen the show. Uh, it's a young audience very often that sometimes also is planning to go out after Le Bernardin. So they come to us and then I don't know, they go have drinks somewhere, yeah. go dance or something. There's plenty to do in New York Midtown oh, of course. after a meal. Mid- it's, it, Midtown is reinvented. I agree. Midtown, Midtown is very different than pre-COVID, actually. Well, we'll talk about the new uh, collaboration with Pierre that you, that you have. Yes. Um, because I think that is uh, a sign of Midtown coming back. I, I'm a big Midtown supporter. I love, I love the food up here. And I feel like uh, the offices may be slightly empty, but there's still an energy here for in Midtown. Sure, for sure. Well, Rockefeller Center has been reinvented. I mean, when you see uh, the restaurants like Le Rock yep. and, and many other restaurants that are now. Naro is amazing. Yes. Jupiter is coming along. Yes, coming along very quickly. Yep. Uh, it's, it's fantastic because... That's location. I mean, Rockefeller Center is pretty iconic and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And we forgot about it because there was nothing really exciting there. But today, yeah. with the reinvention of Rockefeller Center and what's going on in the neighborhoods around, even yeah. Times Square is moving and changing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very exciting what's happening midtown. Yeah, I agree with you fully. I want to talk a little bit about uh, Le Bernardin in terms of eras because I wanted to ask you first – uh, out of the time you've been there, is there a favorite era? And I and you, I know you're going to say the era now is like the best era, but taking that statement aside, because I know things are going well, is there an era, it could be a two or three period, it could be a 10-year period that you just look upon and like, wow, that was a time at Le Bernardin. Well, the beginning was tough because yeah. I, st- I started and three years later, Gilbert Lecoz passed away. Right so away. that was not really uh, happy uh, no. in terms of experience. And uh, it was... 
it was intense. I was young. I was also learning the craft and mm-hmm. and how to manage the restaurant with Maggie Lecoz. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe the late 90s, very late 90s, beginning of the 2000s, yeah. were pretty exciting, I have to say, because we were finishing the millennial. Yeah. Uh, we were looking at the year 2000 and, to, and, and, mm-hmm. and after 2000. Um, I used to go clubbing on the weekend. A little tunnel? You went to tunnel? I was going more to Twilo than the Tunnel. Oh, more Twilo, yeah. I thought the sound system at Twilo was much, much better than the Tunnel. <laughs> and I was obsessed with the, the sound, the music. Yeah. And they had this iconic DJ called Junior Vasquez. Oh, of course. Who was uh, a legend in New York at the time. Yeah. So you know what I was doing at that time? I would finish Le Bernardin. I would go to bed around 12.30, 1 o'clock in the morning. I would wake up at 6. <sighs> put my sneakers and my jeans and, and, and go dance from 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning until 1. And at 1, I would go have lunch at pasties with my wife. Oh, my. Uh, so I was dancing from 7 to 1. This, that, that, that scene, when, what's that like at So at it was amazing. Twilo. It was surreal. Um, people were there, I guess, when Twilo opens, which is midnight or one o'clock, yeah. I don't even remember. And Junior Vasquez was there already for quite some time. I don't know what they were doing, those people, but no. um, they were in great form when yeah. I was arriving. <laughs> <laughs> and and it would last, and they would be great until 12. Yeah. And then I know that they were playing until four or five on the afternoon. Oh, yeah. But the music was starting to change around noon. It was not as good. They was get, the the peak up, was yeah. 7 to, yep. to noon or 12.30. Yep. So I was very selective about what I wanted to do. What a great to, scene to, to be there like in, at 7 a.m. dawn um, at the end, like twilight. Do you like limelight too? Did you go over there? Limelight, the sound system was too, too yeah, bad for too me. Bad, I didn't yeah. like it. Um, Roxy had a good sound system. Yep. Uh, of course, the tunnel was interesting, but I didn't like the sound. Yeah. Uh, the music was good. Definitely good. And it was another one in Tribeca, another nightclub uh, where Danny Tanaglia were, oh. was, was playing. Man Ray? No, no, something else. Smaller, but mm. anyway. Suede? There's Suede no, for a while. Eh. Something else. Such I, a great I scene. Forgot. Let's talk about the, let's talk about the late <laughs> 90s. You forgot, really. <laughs> I'm dodging those questions, Eric, because you got a lot of energy at six in the morning. I mean, come on. We all do. Now... Let's seven, talk, seven. 7 a.m., yeah. Let's talk about the, the food in the 90s and the late 90s. What, you, what Like, this is, I, I love this that you bring up this era because clearly, like, the celebrity chef is just starting. It's like, I feel like, I mean, you're shaking your head, which you disagree. I like that. I just think in terms of, like, the Food Network style of celebrity is just starting to pick up. Now, of course, Ruth Reichel has been writing about New York for years at that point, and it's becoming part of the culture in the late 90s, but... There yeah. was a moment in the late 90s when television really took off and t- television yes, chef. you're right, because TV Food Network on the beginning was struggling. Definitely. They were in a building, actually, not too far from Le Bernardin. They even asked me if I would like to be on the program, hmm. which I thought was a bad idea to have a French guy with a French accent <laughs> and, and so on. But anyway, um, yeah, in the late 90s, finally, they were having their own stars. I mean, Mario Batali and... And Bobby Flay. Mm-hmm. Rachel Ray. Rachel Ray was definitely yep. a, a big success. Uh, and many other names. Uh, so those those ones were in parallel to the success of the Jean-Georges and the Daniel and Thomas mm-hmm. Keller and so on. Yeah. What about the food at Le Bernardin at that point? What, was there a, a, a style of cooking that you were channeling in the late 90s? Late 90s, I know already my style because... I started in 91 yes. at Le Bernardin. Yes. And Le Bernardin was already successful. I worked with Gilbert Lecoz mm-hmm. uh, until 94, end of 94. But when I started at Le Bernardin, Gilbert Lecoz said to me, you, you have freedom. You do whatever you want, but respect the style of Le Bernardin. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, I'm thinking, what they are doing here, it's really paying homage to the, to the, the fish. Mm-hmm. So I said, you know, the fish is the star of the plate, so therefore... Whatever goes in that plate is to elevate the qualities of any kind of seafood that is mm-hmm. in a plate. So a lobster is very different than the codfish, which is very different than the scallop, very different than the fluke and so on. And it took me years to really understand what I was talking about yeah. 
and really feel confident to say, with that uh, piece of salmon, you need to put a broth like this, like that, and a certain garnish. And and in the late 90s, I'm very confident. And since then, I have been um, keeping that mantra with me, fish is the star of the plate. But what has evolved in a style in Of Le Bernardin, it's the fact that I live in New York and I travel quite a bit and I get inspired from my experiences outside. Yeah. And uh, I bring influences uh, from all over the world, keeping my roots, which is I'm a French guy from the south of France who was living on the border um, with Spain and had a grandmother from Italy. Mm-hmm. So, of course, I have this background and uh, uh, this is the backbone of the style. But again, we have influences from Korea and from mm-hmm. Japan and from Cambodia, Vietnam, from South America, from all over the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, they still fall into the mold of the fish is the star of the plate. But you're still showing your global experiences. Had you been to Japan in the late 90s? When, like, when did you first start to go to Japan? I uh, went to Japan the first time when the Michelin Guide went, came out in Japan. Mm. I think it was the early 2000s. Okay, okay. To maybe 2007, 2008. And then year after year after year. I you have, would go it, back. And, yes, and... I fascinated by the culture of Japan. Yeah. Before... My only experience was from sushi places in yeah. New York and other places and, and eating omakase and so on. Mm-hmm. And I love the ingredients from from their um, menus. So I will integrate them my own in my own way without understanding really um, the culture. But when I went to Japan, it was like for me an eye-opener. Yeah. And uh, I have been uh, fascinated by that culture. Yeah. I mean, you, I feel like you were cooking with Japanese inspiration in the early 2000s when I think I first experienced yes. the burn and yeah, and it was pretty progressive at the time, yeah. I felt. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because we were progressive many, many times without knowing. Sure. In 1995, I was in Peru. Yeah. 1995, 1996, went back to Peru, cooking for two weeks when Fujimori was president and he was coming every night to have dinner at the the restaurant where we were and uh, learning about the food of Peru. At that time, we were not speaking about Peru in 95, 27 years ago, 28 now. Um, We were in Brazil, we were in South Mm. America, we were in Mexico, uh, in many places in South America, of course in Europe. Spain, Italy, and, and France. and Certainly had and, been inspir- inspiring chefs for years and decades before then. Yeah, those places. Yes. But Peru, absolutely not. No. And then um, when I went to, to Asia, I was like, wow, this is amazing. Yeah. Even when we went together to Korea, yeah. I was so inspired by the culture. Yeah. Uh, for me, it was like an eye-opener. That was amazing. So in 2014, we got to go to Korea. It was your first trip to Korea. And I wrote a story for Bon Appetit at the time. And we spent, I think, eight days there. Maybe more, I, no? I, Ten days. I, I, I still think so fondly. You that never time. slept. Well, you, you party the entire time. I, 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 <laughs> we both um, had some late nights. But we also had, uh, I believe it, we, it was called hagfish, but I believe we ate some snakes. Remember when we had those snakes? They were pulled out of the mud. And we're uh, thrown in the flame alive. You're shaking your head. Yeah. Yeah. We had some things. I think it was worse than what you think. (laughs) It was a parasite that lives in big fish. That's, I mean, it was something that we were eating. They were like that size. Yes. Like uh, four inches. They weren't that big. That's right. Yeah. They look like basically like a worm. They were worms or snakes, yeah. and we and they were they, and everyone's they were, oh no, it's these a are parasite eels. that lives in the skin of the big animals. Yeah, and they, <laughs> it's a delicacy. <laughs> yeah, that was that was in Busan. That was a cool. Uh, I mean, going to a going to a Buddhist temple with you, and it was the first time you had been in a Korean temple. Yeah, I felt. Uh, well, there was uh, the food was very different. Yes. because in the, in, in the temples it's uh, vegan. Absolutely, yeah. and that was a that was like obviously you had not met John Kwan yet before then. I mean, it, this was like years before that. Years before John Kwan. First time you'd been to Korea, and and I felt just observing you and watching you and writing about you, it was remarkable that you were so engaged and interested in the Korean culture. Yes. and food. Yes, very much. Because for me, it was something completely new. It was uh, something that I never thought. 
about the culture of like the approach of the the food, what the food is, except nourishing your body. Um, especially in the temples, it's uh, basically for them, it's a practice, it's a meditation. Um, the way they think is so different. And uh, we don't necessarily have that in a Western world. I mean, it's for me, it's a learning experience it's, all the time when I go there. I went to Gelado last uh, in 2021. I went to a temple and I got to wake up at four in the morning and cook, watch, observe the cooks. It was yes. amazing. The food is beautiful. Temple food is incredible. Yes. The food is beautiful and at the same time it's very simple. Yes. And what is interesting is that the food becomes beautiful, but they never care about the presentation. Yes. Temple food is about, first of all, temple food starts when you are going to the garden and you're planting the seeds mm -hmm. in the soil. And you're putting prayers of peace and compassion mm -hmm. and praying for the plants to grow and feed as many people. And that practice is pretty amazing. Imagine if the farmers here, we were doing that. <laughs> right. <laughs> like I'm praying for that uh, no. uh, corn to yeah. feed. The GMO uh, corn in <laughs> Iowa. I'm, yeah. I'm putting a prayer out for you. Yeah, there's a definitely a different way that agriculture is is absorbed in in a temple garden but it's very it's so it's a very different way of see, seeing life and then yeah they don't want to kill the the insects and the wild boar that's going to yeah. eat a little bit they, they're sharing yeah. and then again it's a practice of mindfulness when they are harvesting and when they are finally cooking it's uh it's a fascinating experience Hasn't it been amazing to see what's happened in Korea in the past eight years since we went there? I mean, the way that it's expanded the Korean food scene in New York. And oh, yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean, the first one that really became famous in terms of uh, reputation in fine dining was Junsik. Yeah. Uh, downtown. Mm -hmm. And uh, previously Chanterelle. Yeah, I know. And, in that same space. Exactly. And, uh, and now you have Atomics. Yeah. Atoboy, which is mm -hmm. a bit more casual, but same same owners. And you have many, uh, Jua and many yeah. other places. You've made it to Jua? Yes. Wonderful. It's it's really, really uh, fascinating what, what they are doing because they do not compromise their origin and style, mm -hmm. um, but they adapt, in, I think, in an organic way to to where they are, which is New York City. Yeah, what Ellie and JP have done with Auto Mix um, is remarkable. And bringing uh, Michelin and bringing all the all the journalists from around the world to understand the way New York and Korea come together in that fine dining. It's just remarkable. It is remarkable. And they have their own way of reinventing the idea of fine dining as well. Speaking of fine dining, I wanted to ask you about the closing of Noma. It seems like a big moment. I can't let it pass because... Noma stood for so much, and I know you were an early, early, early fan of Noma. You went well before um, any Michelin inspector, World's 50 Best guy. You you went there, and you were like, "This is interesting," because I know. Yes. You tell that story. I'm curious. I was in, um, so I decided in January. I don't remember the year, um, but to go in Scandinavia, which is stupid to go in January. Yeah, there's but, no sunlight. Uh, you don't see the sun. And and uh, I started actually in Iceland, then I went to Norway, then I went to um, uh, Copenhagen, and I went to mm. Stockholm. And uh, we were staying in Copenhagen, and then we asked for restaurants that could be interesting or something new. And, yeah. and uh, someone said, you know, it's a restaurant at the end of the harbor over there. Mm. I mean, it's not the, the area is not even developed. You should go. So we we didn't even make a reservation. We walked in, and it was beautiful inside, very warm, very Scandinavian, with skins of uh, ships on the chairs, and yeah. uh, very very nice. And I I pass by the kitchen; it's an open kitchen, and I see Rene, and I can't help to just smile at him, mm. and I smile genuinely. And then we went to our table. He smiled back, by the way. <laughs> yeah. And then he came, he talked to us, and he explained to us that his idea was to promote what was in the region. And even if it was limited in the winter, it would serve only ingredients that are uh, that were from, from Copenhagen and the, the suburbs. And everything in a restaurant, from the silverware to the furniture to the candles, the lighting, everything was from Copenhagen. Mm -hmm. And... 
we had a fantastic experience. Food was good, obviously. Uh, the food, the food yeah. was delicious, whatever. Did it feel experimental? And, and, no, not and, at all. So that's why it was early days, Noma was very different. Yes, Noma was not a classic restaurant, no. but it was definitely not experimental. Yeah. He was doing delicious food mm-hmm. with fantastic products from yeah. the fishermen that he knew, and uh, he had meat from the farmer that he knew and vegetables, yeah. mostly root vegetables at that time from, again, his friends, that, farmers and so, and so on. So that was my first experience at Noma. I went back uh, many, many years later when he was already uh, well-known, 50 best put him on Capital the, R, capital R, Rene Redzepi, that's it. <laughs> right. And, yes. And he was, he was already... Um, number one in the 50 best and, mm-hmm. and re- well-recognized. And it was a very interesting experience. Uh, he was very kind with us and we had a fantastic time. And I went last year again mm. uh, to see the new Noma. Yeah, the new space. The new space. Mm-hmm. And I had a great time and it was uh, very interesting. And uh, uh, René being very curious and very, um, how can I say, um, Adventurous, yeah. with what he's doing, and and his style is very, very different than anybody else, except the ones that copy him. <laughs> yeah, which is like all the people who work there and, and moving on to throughout the world. Now, I have to ask you: out of the three meals, was there one in particular that you felt stood out in terms of the cuisine, taste, like the flavors? That I, I feel like when you you tell the story of those three meals, you become more and more adventurous. But is is it as delicious in those later meals? Yeah, the food was delicious. I remember on every meal something that was very powerful in my memory. Um, The latest meal that I had at Noma, it was interesting because he was playing with the brain of the deer. Yeah. And it's it's scary on the menu when you read it and when you eat it, it's, it's delicious and it's not what you expected it. Yeah. Uh, especially f- f- from a guy like me who doesn't eat brains. Yeah. Um, if you tell me I'm going to eat brain, I'm like, okay. And then yeah. it's, it was great. Um, the deer penis with the caviar, um, I was a bit afraid of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, not necessarily <laughs> excited about yeah. it. And same thing, it was, it was delicious. And at the end of the meal, I remember he gave us uh, for dessert a bone marrow with caramelized marrow. Mm. So they cook the, the, the marrow, I guess, with, I don't know if it's honey or sugar or something, and then they put it back in a bone marrow and mm. you eat it like that with different garnishes. And hmm. and it was like basically pure marrow caramelized. And I was like that, I'm, it's not going to fly by me. And it was delicious again. Yeah. So he's, he's pushing the envelope and of course you have the fermented food and, and yeah. all of that. But it's a, it's a very unique experience, and it's very René Redzepi. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, as someone who loves food and and hospitality, going to his place is very inspiring. I would imagine. Thank yeah. you for sharing those those memories. And I, I feel like we are maybe bearing the lead a little bit with our talk of the closing of Noma. Because when it comes down to it, the culinary excellence is true, and the fact that he's impressing you no bullshit, is great. Like, the fact that you are being surprised by him, someone who gets to see all types of cooking, is a real testament to his style and his creativity. And he has a style that is very different than Le Bernardin style, and he has a philosophy of hospitality that is very different than Le Bernardin uh, philosophy for hospitality as well. Yeah. Um, the chef's coming out, right? That's one of them. Yeah. The chef's coming out yes. from the kitchen and serving, right? That's yes. not what you do at Le Bernardin. We don't do that at Le Bernardin. I want the chef to stay in a kitchen and yeah. not be distracted and not to have to um, go in a dining room and uh, potentially be intimidated or just lose focus in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. I just want them to stay in a, in a kitchen and, and do what they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not criticizing what René is doing. I think it's fantastic. I love to see the chef coming at me and presenting the food and... And it's it's lovely. It's great. Um, yeah, it's just not for you. And, it's, and you're it's, not, no, but I I appreciate yeah. what he does, and yeah. I respect what he does. There's been a lot of written about the, the the fine dining piece of Noma closing, and how fine dining is threatened um, in a way by the end of Noma as we know it. Though 
The big caveat is he's closing in 2025. So he's not closing tomorrow. There's going to be some... Yeah, he's going to be packed for two years. He's going to be packed for two years, and then he's going to go on the road quarterly and, and be packed for and have a lot of vacation time. Just kidding. I mean, but he'll... Maybe. Hopefully, I, I want him to have vacation. Of course. <laughs> but, the, but the statement, I got to get your take on, on fine dining. Like, I mean, fine dining is such a nebulous term. I mean, but Le Bernardin is fine dining because of the way you structure it and the fine elements, the fine point on all of your elements, culinary and service. Does it mean that the closing in Noma, does that mean anything to you in terms of fine dining's future? I don't see fine dining being affected uh, by the closing of Noma, other than the fact we're going to miss Noma if it doesn't exist mm-hmm. anymore uh, in, in the basket of fine dining, because fine dining is so diverse. Yeah. Fine dining in Japan is very different than right. fine dining in Paris, and Paris is not New York, and we are obviously not Copenhagen. So... Fine dining is so diverse, and uh, when you lose one one element, it's missing. But we move on, and uh, and when Il Bouilly closed, similar, it was wow. We missed suddenly. We missed Ferran tremendously, and what happened? He closed, and uh, we're still moving on. Not when I say we, it's not Le Bernardin. It's the entire. Uh, cooking community, the entire uh, hospitality industry that is specialized in fine dining. Mm-hmm. You, got, you guys are staying open though, right? Le Bernardin? Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah, we stay open. <laughs> no, I know. I'm, I mean, it's it's like our reaction to certain restaurants closing is 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 visceral. Like we have like these the outpouring of grief when restaurants close. And I feel like there are many who are mourning like Obuli and Noma closing, especially people who work in the industry like yourself very closely. Again, I mean, if you, if you close... I will be um, missing it, but it's not going to change my life in terms of a businessman operating the restaurant. It's not going to change the life of the fine dining scene in New mm-hmm. York. It's not going to change Paris. It's not going to change the fine dining <laughs> global scene in yeah. the world. Uh, it, we just have one element that it will yeah. be missing. Business is coming back to Le Bernardin. I mean, I was there this summer and it was very difficult to book. I, you helped me with the reservation. It was quite, <laughs> quite crowded, quite busy. Yes, same thing today. Yeah, we're what, in like what, January, what, what Monday. What are we today? I don't even know. It's, it's Monday, Monday and it's very cold and crappy The 23rd, yeah. Monday the 23rd. It, today was packed for lunch. We packed for dinner. Um, huh. Private events, we were booked for, for lunch with a special group and we had bodyguards all over the street. Oh, yeah. <laughs> One of those special events. Nice. One of those. Yeah. Um, so it's 20 to, uh, 2022 was excellent. I love to hear that. I really mean it, that. I yeah. love to hear that. It's it, so ha- I'm happy about that. And what I'm happy about is not that it's excellent only for Le Bernardin. When I speak to my friends who are uh, in the restaurant industry, the majority of them had a fantastic 2022. Mm-hmm. And as you know, where we are, it's midtown big buildings that were empty most of the year. Mm-hmm. Despite the fact that those buildings were empty, we were packed for lunch. We were packed at, at night. And when I say we, it's not only, again, Le Bernardin, but it's us. Oh, La Rock. Go to all those Rock Center places. All, those all, are doing yes. really well. Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. Uh, are we coming back to our offices in the Midtown? What do you think? Yes. I think everybody's tired to be home. Uh, yeah. to be in a pajama and uh, mm-hmm. look at the computer uh, on the kitchen table or mm-hmm. in a bedroom. And I think the people who are responsible for the large firms want to see their team interacting because if you are isolated, you, I don't think you can perform the same way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, this is the refrain from many in, in finance and in law and who have stakes in real estate, of course. They want workers back. Um, I'm personally a for interaction with human beings. I, I enjoy that. Um, that's my type of personality, you know? Yes. You know? No, interaction is fantastic. I mean, how can you conduct business if you don't see yeah. the people, but like in in real, not through the screen on Zoom? Yeah. Yeah. It's it, it's And, and it, you're feeling it in New York that folks are, are coming back. It feels that way. Yes. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about uh, your new re- your your Pierre's restaurant. Let's talk about it a little bit. Lemme Pierre, Pierre. Yes. Right. Lemme Pierre. Yeah. yeah Lemme Pierre. Sorry. Lemme Pierre. Let's talk about that because for me it represents uh, a bit of a 
a merging of your interests. I mean, it's not your restaurant. Like you're not the chef there every day. Pierre is there, but it's your you're involved with it, right? Yes. So Lamy Pierre is basically 20 yards from Le Bernardin. Yeah, exactly. It's like uh, the next door I mean, place, yeah. We look at each other <laughs> from the window. And that space was uh, Maison Kaiser before the COVID. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, they closed and never reopened. And then the building came at me and said, would you like to take the space? And I said, you know, I would love to take the space, but I'm not an expert at making croissant and pain au chocolat and uh, the sandwich business. You have to know that that uh, dynamic and I'm not uh, I'm not really uh, understanding how it works. But you know a guy. But I know someone. And Pierre-Antoine uh, is involved with La Durée. And I thought it would be interesting to bring someone like him with his expertise and and not bringing a brand that is very famous. Not like I have anything against Pret-a-Manger or, or other brands, but would be something slightly different. So I approached Pierre-Antoine. He was very interested. And then um, I had the idea of doing sandwiches where you cook the bread, you let it warm up, I mean, or cool, cool yeah, off, yeah, right? Yeah. So it's not too hot. And then if it's uh, jambon beurre, you, you, you have the, bre- the, the bread that is mm-hmm. room temperature out of the oven, the soft butter, you put some good quality ham and you serve it right away. That sandwich was not made at 3 a.m. somewhere. And, mm. Hoboken. Uh, Hoboken and, yeah. and, and delivered uh, by six and you eat it at night. Uh, so... That's basically the concept. Yeah, jambon bear, more more of those in my life. It's a it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful dish. When it's well done, yeah. with, it's simple. But fresh bread, fresh croissant, fresh mm-hmm. pain au chocolat, all those, uh, madeleine, whatever you bake right away, mm-hmm. it's it's delicious all the time. Is Lamy Pear something that can be brought to many markets? Is this uh, scale-able? Uh, I'm not, I don't know because again, I'm not, yeah. I'm not the expert. Right. Um, I guess, yes. I mean, you need, you need ovens, right? <laughs> and, uh, and then you need a couple of people to mm-hmm. make sandwiches and salads and soups and in winter and, yeah. and then f- few things for the, good coffee for breakfast and yeah. some croissant coming out of the oven that you cannot Beat. I love Lamy Pierre. I love it. It's it's. Call him Peter. I know. I know. <laughs> I, I, I'm 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 choking on this French right here. I took a few years in college and I I still can't even get it. Um, but I I I like it. it seems like it seems like there can be many different uh, versions of it in different cities. I just it could be. Uh, first, we have to make sure this one works really absolutely the way we want, and we are we are there. We're getting there slowly. Few more questions. I have to ask you. I ask you this every time I, I chat with you. Thirty Two Yokes, one of my favorite memoirs. Thank you. Not just chef memoirs. I, I love you. the story. Has it been an option for Hollywood yet? I feel with the bear, and now we've got the menu. We've got some interests in in food in the in Hollywood. Are you working on the option? So what happened with Thirty Two Yokes? Um, I was approached pre-COVID to to sell the rights of the script and. Um, and the French were interested to do a movie. And then it lingered and they wrote a script. Uh, the challenge with Hollywood at the time was Hollywood doesn't let the author control the script. And I said, it's my life mm-hmm. and the life of people around me. And there's no way you're going to do anything you want with it. <laughs> so I have to have the control. I have to have the approval. Let's put it this way. Yeah. You have to read the script. Yeah. I have to read it and approve it, and then you can do whatever you want. So Hollywood said, we never do that. <laughs> the French said, okay, deal. Ah. So they, they wrote a script. I worked with them. Um, we were there, and it never happened. And Come now in. I know that the the script is actually in Hollywood, and as some big producers are interested by the script, is only what I know. It's interesting. I mean, it is a cyclical business, and and when you see something like the bear and the menu succeed at the box office and and make and win awards, you just have to look for that type of content. And your story is incredible. It's an incredible journey that you took 
for, uh, especially the early days at Robichon and getting there. I mean, this this is not your full story. And I have to ask you second part of my question is, is there a part two that you're working on? No, I'm not thinking about part two at all. Because when I came to the U.S., I was already trained by Robuchon, okay. And yes, of course, I could say I could explain what happened to me in Washington D.C. with yeah. Jean-Louis Paladin. Yeah, pretty great and, story. And working with David Boulet, and, and but it's not it's not thirty-two yolks. It's not as intense and powerful, and in, I think inspiring. I wanted thirty-two yolks to be inspiring people. I am, and then when I came to Le Bernardin, from that day on. Everything has been documented pretty well in the press and everywhere. From 91 until now? Until now. Yeah. And I'm like, what do I have to say? Okay. I'm, I don't have it in my head. Let's fair enough. It. I mean, Eric, and, that's fair, fair, fair. And in my heart. Because when I do a book, it has to be yeah. in, in my head, in my heart. I, I have that. to be really passionate about it. And I don't have that lately. Mm. Not, not about a sequence for 32 years. Yeah, for a second part of the memoir. And yeah. maybe that will happen at some point. Maybe. I would love to read it. I would love to read your 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 time at uh, at Twilo. Oh yeah, that was interesting. I mean, there's got to be some <laughs> stories there. It was a lot of funny stories there, but I was not alone. By the way, it was a, a lot of guys from Jean Georges going there, and a lot yeah. of guys from Daniel, and we would meet every um, Sunday morning at seven. There's a whole narrative of the of of a, of a '90s based chef drama where there's a club at the center of it and you're meeting at the club. I just feel like the bear has done such a good, did you watch the bear? No, I yeah. haven't. Yeah. It's I need good. to. And the menu too. I have to see it. I haven't watched it. We've talked about both on the, on the taste podcast and, and they're both, they're both cool because they're bringing a lot of attention to food and yeah. the industry of, of making food, the restaurant industry. The, check out the menu. You have to. I'm going to check the menu. <laughs> I mean, I heard, I don't, I don't, Want to spoil the, yeah. the the story of the menu? But I heard there's a suicide in the beginning of the movie or something like that. There's violence throughout the film. Yeah, I'll say there's violence throughout the film, and I don't want to say too much more. Okay, we're not gonna say. Yeah, there is a trigger more. warning. If you aren't aren't into, uh, obviously, if those are triggering, don't watch the menu. But it is uh, dark, mm. uh, satire, and it hits hard in the fine dining world. Okay. Hey, hey. And, and that's why I haven't watched it because when yeah. I leave my kitchen, the last thing I want is to see another kitchen. Which, I know. Uh, and, and if it's violent, even more. <laughs> yeah. Stay away from there. I'd say I'll the, watch it. the violence is appropriate and it's, it's all to further the satire and the comment on, on, on fine dining, on food media. It's a lot of rich, it's a rich text, I'll say, what Good. we do with the f- cooking and the writing of food and they've kind of tapped into it. I've, I'll watch it. <laughs> um, you're working on another cookbook, and I know yes. we'll have you back in the fall to talk about that book. I don't want to spoil too much of the show, but tell us. I know there's seafood involved, right? Yes. It's going to be called Seafood uh, Simple. Excellent. So I did Vegetarian Simple. Yep. Now Great I'm, book. Do, I'm doing, uh, thank you so much, uh, Seafood Simple. D- very different in its, in its approach. Yeah. Um, but we actually today, we are going to deliver the book to the publisher with the last edit. Today? Uh, today. Literally, we're at the publisher. So you yes. have it in your pocket right here? I don't have it in my pocket because it's... <laughs> it's a file. It's, it's, a lot of, uh, <laughs> it's a lot of files. But yeah. tomorrow, it will go to printer. Yeah. Oh, how do you feel about that? It's going to the printer tomorrow. Well, except if the publisher decides to send it next week, but it's yeah, ready. It's I done. Know, I know. The book is done. Amazing. Give us a little preview. So seafood simple, it's almost like an oxymoron because cooking seafood is not that simple. <laughs> yes. And the secret to make it simple, it's the techniques. So I'm basically demystifying how to cook seafood. And you just follow eight or nine techniques that are pretty universal. And we guide you mm-hmm. step by step really carefully so you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to think about it. You just follow the direction and it's guaranteed you're going to be able mm. to cook anything you want. Wow. And is there uh, an emphasis on, on fish versus shellfish versus no. um, mollusks? A little bit of everything. Mm. We, are, we cook calamari and we cook scallops and lobster and shrimp yeah. and all kind of uh, fish. 
I feel like I, I don't want to spoil it because I want to have you back, but I, I'm, I can't wait to read that. I, I feel like I need more f- fish in my life. I believe you're going to really enjoy it because you're going to feel so confident. Yeah. And you're going to be like, oh, wow. Okay, if maybe I was intimidated by cooking a piece of halibut or a codfish or something like that. Now, oh, wow, this is super simple. Mm-hmm. I can do it only if you follow the direction. Are you cooking more in liquid and steaming like that? Or are you cooking on a pan? Or is there like is there like a tendency in this direction? I know it's a every Every species are very different. Yeah, so sure. you do not cook a piece of tuna the way you cook a halibut, the no. way you cook a lobster, the way you're going to cook a scallop. Right. Everything is so different. And you apply certain techniques to certain species because they are the best technique to elevate those species. I really like this. I, I will hopefully get the, a copy of it soon. We work here. So I hope so. We're, we're, working, we're working for you, working with you on this book. I love Thank it. Thank you. Uh, a few more questions. You posted a cryptic Instagram uh, story or post about a private paella event with uh, Jose Andres <laughs> in a parking lot around midnight. That was like three days ago. What, the, what was that about, Eric? What was that? So Jose... Jose Andres we're talking about. Um, Jose is the king of the paella. Yeah. I don't know anyone who understands paella and rice better than Jose. And I have been watching him doing paellas, especially in the Cayman Islands when we have our festival, Cayman Cookout, every January. And he's cooking paella for 200 people. And it's a comedy. And he's playing. And you never know where you're going. An hour later... After finally making cocktails, drinking, playing, cooking the paella, the paellas are, are <laughs> ready and they are delicious, but more than delicious. Mm. And then Jose really is, is the expert. So I always ask him, how do you make the paella? And he's always very vague. And, and when we were in Cayman um, a week ago, I said, Jose, I would like to have a private class with you. And Wow. And I said, because I don't understand. You claim that the ratio in between the rice and the liquid is 10 to 1. It cannot be 10 to 1. Mm-mm. It's 2 and a half to, to 1. Yeah, 10 to 1. I said, 10 to 1. I swear to you, 10 to 1. I said, well, show it, show it to me. I said, okay, before the end of the week, I'll show it to you. Mm. So on the last day, <laughs> he said, come, come meet me. I am on a parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere in an undisclosed location. Uh, undisclosed location. We cannot say where it was because we, we burned down the parking lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but wow. um, we, he showed me how to cook the paella. And he was right. It's 10 to 1, except the fact that... So he had very few ingredients. Olive mm. oil, rabbit, chicken, saffron, salt, pepper, water. No pimenton? No pimenton. Wow. Nothing else. That's it. That was it. Good saffron. And that's, that's the typical paella from Valencia. Mm-hmm. That's the, the purest paella. When he starts the stock, he put, he put the chicken and the rabbit and, and, and garlic, I forgot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but he put the chicken and the rabbit, the garlic and the olive oil, and then he's putting all the liquid. So he creates a stock. And then it's a lot of wood underneath burning and it's boiling like crazy. Mm-hmm. And the stock reduces very fast. So by the time he put the rice, the stock has, has reduced by half already, more than half. And then he puts more wood underneath and you have those gigantic flames. And the rice, like, it's boiling. It's, it's like jumping in the air yeah. on top of the paella pan. And it's 16 minutes on the dot. 16 minutes later, you take the paella pan, you let it rest three minutes. Three minutes? Three minutes. And the paella is amazing. And you have uh, the crust underneath, like which is not too cooked, not too soft. It's like perfection. It's kissed, like brown kissed sakurat. So I, d- I decided to uh, put it on Instagram. <laughs> I love it. And you told me the story. I love it. Thank you for sharing the story. It seems like those flames are going to get it. Like it's going to be over a thousand degrees. It's, it's got to be very hot. Like, yes. It, I mean, it, the, I mean if that, you look at the picture on the, on the post... Uh, it's few pictures, but if you look at it, it's like flames that are like yeah. three, four feet tall, like surrounding the paella and under the paella. That's the pen. key is that because you're not going to get that from a conventional gas range. No. Even at the highest So BTUs. therefore the proportion changed completely. Exactly. Yeah. And that, that makes the sense for the 10 to 1 ratio. Wow. Yeah. 
And it was because good. I, I thought he was joking. I said, 10 to 1, you're joking, Jose. Yeah. And he was like, no, I'm serious, I'm serious. So anyway, midnight, I went. You went. I saw it. You had some I'm sherry. I'm a true believer. Yeah, I love that. What a, what a great friend to teach you yes. paella. I felt, He's a friend. I felt very privileged because I cook paellas, mostly seafood paellas, yeah. for many, many years. I like mine. <laughs> it's not like I dislike it. Yeah. But it doesn't compare with Jose Paella. Yeah. Eric, we asked our guests on the Taste Podcast if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have all the, the time in the world. You have years to write this. Or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world. What would that book be? Hmm. Maybe an homage to Le Bernardin. Okay. But it would take more than a year then. Is that what you're... you're... Yeah, but books take more than a year. Yeah. No matter what. It's not like you can write... A... I mean, some books take... A uh, few months and they're ready, but when I, I mean, the way I do books, it takes it takes two or three years. Mm-hmm. So if it was, if it was an homage to Le Bernardin, we would look into the archives of Le Bernardin. We would look into the present. We would, yeah, I mean, we would have a lot of things to do. Uh, but that could be an interesting project. Um, I like that. I see that in my future. But I, I have something I really, really want to do. Also, it's a book, um, and it, it's. A relationship with temple food, but it's a book that is not vegetarian, but plant-based, 100%. Um, not necessarily inspired by the Korean culture, but um, the philosophy, yes, for sure. Yeah, but culinary-wise, it will be global. It, will, it won't be... It cr- will be what I like to eat. What you like to eat, sure. That, that makes more sense. I cannot cook anything yep. except what I like to eat. Eric Pear, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you very much, Matt. It's a pleasure, of course. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 